You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Well, didn't you make a fool of me between the peas and brisket and your sister? Off the rails, this goddamn conductor drove. Welcome to our Solid Ally series. Throughout this series, we will discuss ways we can all be better citizens for one another. In a shared humanity, we can accept and acknowledge systematic racism has been riddled throughout our American history. And we can learn and listen from others about this problematic history. But on a hopeful note, you and I can also take all that we learn and then we can roll up our sleeves and begin to do the work to build a more solid and empathetic America, leaving racism in our rearview mirror. Now here is our episode. We hope you enjoy it. This episode is about what are some of the things about the black experience that society accept. We're living in a time in which it is very dangerous to be black in the United States of America and across the globe. With the advent of camera phones, there's been an increasing documentation of the way black people are viewed and treated. And because the vast majority of people are at home due to the global pandemic, more white people are being exposed to this treatment of black people through social media. Professional athletes are in a position to and willing to stand up and speak out. The interesting thing is that the mistreatment that we see today is not new. This has been happening since the birth of this country. The only difference now is the level of documentation. I personally have spent decades watching black men, women, and children die at the hands of the police and has made me angry, sad, frustrated, and tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Jamil Smith, a senior writer at Rolling Stone, read from an essay that he wrote at the New Republic more than five years ago titled, What Does Seeing Black Men Die Do For You? In it, he writes, It seems sickly fitting that those killed by police today are no longer transformed into the anointed or the condemned, but thanks to more advanced and available technology, they become hashtags. With a flood of more videotaped killings, a hashtag seems a brutally meager epitaph, a mere declaration that a victim of police violence was once alive, human, and didn't merit having her or his life stolen. Unfortunately, the increased visibility of trauma and death at the hands of cops isn't doing as much as it should be. The legacy of our increased exposure to black death has merely been the deadening of our collective senses. How did we get here? We got here initially because of slavery and the impact that it had physically, mentally, and the impact 
on families and breaking families apart, forbidding traditions, forbidding language, forbidding religion. Education was, was illegal. There was an inability to own property and blacks couldn't vote. We also got here because of the impact of Jim Crow, segregation, and sharecropping. Another element in this was redlining. A very powerful element has been the impact of the criminal justice system and prisons. And media has had an impact in shaping and perpetuating the negative black stereotypes. Also, there's been an impact generated because of white flight and gentrification. Today we're going to hear from Cherie Allison, who is an attorney who grew up in Oakland, attended Santa Clara University School of Law, also attended UC Berkeley, and has experience working as the executive director of the Family Violence Law Center. She was also a board member of the ACLU of Northern California. She was the director of programs for the Alameda County Bar Association and an assistant dean at Hill Business College. I think that we're all going to enjoy the conversation that we will have today. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good for a cold and chilly and smoky <laughs> Saturday morning. I know, I know, but you know, uh, the day is going to get better, I do believe. I guess I have to believe yeah. that, right? Right, right. Keep hope alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Cherie, thanks for making the time to sit down and talk with me today. What's your What's your background? Who is Cherie Ellison? Lawyer by trade. I've worked in the field of domestic violence for about 40 years, and before that I practiced family law for a number of years, mm-hmm. and then I'm retired. What I've noticed over the past few years, that news coverage seems to indicate that what we're seeing and experiencing in terms of black men, women, and children being shot and killed by the police is something new, that the police are being called on black people working, studying, cleaning their car, et cetera. And uh, again, the media is portraying this as something new. Can you tie these events to times before the present day? Yes. Um, just growing up, I I born and raised in Oakland, California, and just growing up there always has been a history of conflict between the African-American community and the police department. The police department has never been, in my opinion, uh, protect and serve. Uh, Just, you know, growing up in the 60s and stuff, there were, you know, famous cases out of Oakland about police and police brutality um, towards the black community. 
particularly the Oakland Riders case. You know, it was just everybody knew it. This is the thing to do and beware of the police. And the Oakland Riders were a group of police officers who were targeting people of color. Exactly. And, you know, Oakland, there it was mainly black people. So this is something that's been going on uh, for a number of years, not something new. Uh, I think that we could reflect back to the 60s and uh, even before that. Right. You know, during the 60s is when we kind of started to mobilize and protest. But, you know, it, it's, it's been happening, you know, when black people, the majority of them first migrated from the south to Oakland and the Bay Area. They came here for jobs, mainly working in the at the Naval Air Station and, and places like that. So it, it's always been that that tension. And I'm not saying that every single police officer, but in general, the police as a whole just weren't friends of the African-American community. So my take on it is it, it seems like we live in two different realities. There's the reality that the majority population lives in, um, that's the the white majority lives in, and there's the reality that the African-American and the black population um, lives in. And although we exist in the same physical space, how we experience that Space is, is really different. And for me, uh, one case that, that comes to mind really vividly uh, is from back in 2016. And I don't know if you remember, but there, there was this uh, brother named Charles Kinsey, and he worked with autistic young adults. And mm-hmm. uh, one of his uh, charges, one of his patients, uh, was out and about, and he went out after him, and the patient had a little silver truck that he was playing with, and someone passed by, drove by, and thought that the patient uh, had a gun and called the police. And Charles Kinsey uh, was there with the patient when the police arrived and was yelling to the police, don't, don't shoot him, uh, he's autistic. He's got a toy truck, uh, and Charles responded to the police officer's command and laid on the ground uh, with his hands up in the air, and he was still shot in the leg because he was seen as a a threat. So that's kind of the example of uh, two different realities for me. Is that something that you've experienced? Yes, definitely. Black people are often hesitant to call the police even when they need the police because oftentimes when the police come, they have this preconceived notion that the black person is the person that they need to focus on and look out for, you know, and so they would shoot first, but they would be shooting at the black person no matter, you know, 
who the other people were and that the black person needed the help. And, you know, even if it's not shooting, it's like taking black children and teenagers and grown folks, too, to jail. Um, me and my husband often talk about a incident when he was in high school and uh, was riding the bus, and something happened on the bus, but him and his friends didn't have anything to do with it. But when the police came, they snatched all the black kids off the bus and, you know, roughed them up and took them to juvenile hall. And, you know, my husband, you know, is still traumatized by that. I can believe it. I can believe it. That's traumatic. Right. You know, you're just a kid. You're coming from the game or from school or wherever, and something happens, and automatically it's assumed that you are the cause of the problem. Yeah, it goes back to two different realities and uh, how we're seen as black people. Right. And, you know, like for like today in this time, when people rewrite history and it's like, oh, you know, this never happened before and things are getting worse and black people are acting up, you know. You know, you grown. You can't protest. You can't articulate that you are being wrong without it being um, characterized as you're acting up. That That's some slavery talk. Mhm, mhm. I hear what you're saying. Need to control us, no matter what. Even controlling the way we protest. So, exactly. uh, Kaepernick. Uh, uh, people reacted to Kaepernick kneeling as a, a form of protest, which is totally nonviolent, and that wasn't well, acceptable. And so, you know, he lost his job. He was ostracized. I mean, come on now. yeah part of uh having allegiance to a country or or to anything or anyone is a contract and both sides need to live up to the contract so the contract is that if you you're you're loyal and and you're you're nice and you work hard then you'll be treated well and treated the same as everyone else and that contract is broken then I understand why people want to protest and don't want to stand up uh, and pledge allegiance. And so, you know, that's supposedly our right to protest, but it's almost as if you have to check the box, you know, what is allowed to be protested. Or who's allowed to protest. Right. So I'm going to seg- segue to another question. I, I noticed in your your Facebook feed picture of you with uh, with John Lewis. I also know that you've met um, Angela Davis before as well. So how has their work in advocacy, both you know uh, John Lewis's approach to nonviolence and uh, Angela Davis's involvement with the Black Panther Party uh, changed the narrative for black people today? Well, for, I'm going to 
go with Angela Davis first. You know, just for a woman and a black woman to stand up like that and show no fear. It's like, no, I'm not going to let you back me down. But not just to be like radical and say, you know, I'm not standing for this, but to also be doing positive things in the community. Like uh, my sister-in-law worked for the free breakfast program that the Panthers were doing. And uh, when I was in junior college um, at Merritt, we had a, a protest, you know, with the Panthers, and we took over Merritt College, and, yeah, we were pretty radical in those days. But, you know, just to make a stand, like, no, you can't keep treating us like this. And for me, like, seeing her do her work, but also meeting her personally. Like, you know, she wasn't a rabble rouser or angry black woman or any of that stuff. Here was an educated woman trying to do something positive in her community, but you never heard about the positive stuff she was doing in the media. Right. It was just a portrayal of, like you said, rebel rouser, this black revolutionary, someone who's uh, upsetting the system. Right, right. And you, anybody is revolutionary when they go, don't go along with what the system says, who they should be and how they should look and act. You're branded a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. You're not going along with the status quo. Exactly. And um, when I met John Lewis, oh, my God, you know how some people come into the room and they don't have to say anything, just Mm -hmm. their presence and their spirit is overwhelming. And when I met him, he gave me a hug and I started crying. You could feel the power of his love for humanity. It really is like words can't express his love and the love that he poured out to his fellow human beings. It helped me to calm down some and be more reflective before I acted. And it was him and the other person that I met that had that effect on me was the Dalai Lama. I went to an event where he was speaking, and it was like about 100, 150 people in the room, but you could just feel his presence and the love that he exuded for everybody. That's powerful. Yeah, so that those two men helped me to remember, you know, my humanity and to focus on that instead of my anger and hostility. So you have to correct me if I'm I'm wrong, Sheree, but what I'm taking away from what you're saying is that you need both both of those sides. You have you need a, a Martin, but you need a Malcolm. You need a John Lewis, but you also need an Angela Davis yeah, because you do need a spark that's fire to keep the protest alive and 
keep pushing forward, but you also need that kind of introspection and that love of humanity to keep yourself human and not going to the other side. Right. I know when we talked the other day, we talked about how we're angry and frustrated in that kind of the ultimate point that we're just tired. How are you feeling these days? Well, I'm feeling better now that I don't have to go in to work every day. And uh, (laughs) I try to find something to do that brings me pleasure, which, you Mm -hmm. know, is like love reading. So, you know, I'm often looking for like new and interesting books that don't have anything to do with revolution and protest and all of that kind of stuff. So I just come into my office, which is like a really sacred space for me, and I have all the things that I love in here, and it just really brings me a lot of peace and helps me stay calm and level. And the other thing that helps me tremendously is playing with my great-grandkids. So that's uh, good advice for everybody out there that you you need to step away every now and then to keep your sanity. Yeah, right, because you'll really become despondent. And like right. for me, 70 years old and, you know, been on the battlefield all this long time and thinking, you know, we we did this, you know, we've overcome this. Now let's join together as humans and tackle some of the other big issues in the world and to find out, oh, no, I'm back at square one. It's like playing shoots and ladders. Right, right, yeah. We're <laughs> you know, trying. You know, you almost make it to the top and then you get on that shoot and, it's sending you right back down to square one. Yeah, we're still fighting for voting rights. I know. Yeah, oh isn't that amazing? Goodness. Oh, my goodness. I isn't cannot that... believe that. It's so sad. We're fighting for the right to vote. So I, I have another question for you, Suri. What's been your experience as a black woman and attorney with the criminal justice system? Well, that's been quite an experience, I must say, because for most of my career, I've been outside of the criminal justice system, talking shit and, you know, (laughs) taking names, (laughs) you know, just a rabble rouser and, oh, yeah, just, you know, causing a lot of trouble and agitation. So when I started working for the district attorney's office, oh my goodness, first of all, like all my peeps were like, what the, mm-mm-mm. what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Have you lost your mind? Well, two things that made me, help me make that decision was, and I'm sure you are aware of this, most mm-hmm. of my career I've spent working in nonprofits, right. but nonprofits don't treat their employees right in terms of compensation and benefits. And it's like, you know, indentured servitude. So right. I didn't have any, you know, pension or anything. 
So when you know getting towards sixty, I'm thinking, well, you know, when I retire, I'm gonna have that two hundred and fifty nine dollars a month in Social Security. <laughs> And it ain't like I'm living large, but I'm living a little larger than that. So I'm, I was saying, okay, if I work for the DA, you know, decent salary, but I get um, pension benefits. So that was one of the reasons that I, you know, chose to do that. And then I was also thinking we got to have somebody working from the inside. Right. You know, we all right. can't be on the outside throwing stones and stuff. We have to have some people working on the inside to help institute some of these changes or bring new perspectives. But it definitely was not as easy as I thought it would be because the system, oh, my goodness. I just never realized that it was so compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Can Can you say more about that? What was it like? So for me, since I worked at the Justice Center, you know, and I'm used to working in nonprofits, that's how I was working that position. And, you know, I got in trouble because the DA said, you're a DA, and there's protocols and regiments, and these people do this, and these people do that, and never the twain shall meet. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that was really, you know, really surprising. And some Mm -hmm. of the things that I tried to implement were, you know, also like us really talking to each other and really talking to the other nonprofits and seeing where we were alike and where we were different and if we could, you know, make some strides to be operating in the same manner in terms of how we treated clients. And the DA's office, it it's a political institution and then the DA being an elected official and you know so all of that stuff plays into how the office is run. I know in in your role you primarily focused on victims of domestic violence. Were you ever exposed to the defendant's side and and how the DA's office and the criminal justice system treated those people? And if so, how did it look in terms of the difference between the treatment of someone who was white versus someone who was black? Well, yeah, I did work a little bit. I didn't work with defendants, but whatever group this was that we were in, and we were working with the public defender and really looking at how defendants were treated and if they were treated differently, black and white. And the truth of the matter is, you know, we didn't really do a scientific study, but You know they were treated different. They were treated different. Yeah, typically black defendant will receive longer and and harsher sentencing, so more jail time. Jail time in a more restrictive or tougher 
white people do jail time, black people do prison, there's a difference. It appeared, often appeared to me that, you know, black people, you know, they bring up, you know, everything they did since they were six, looking at this is a bad person that needs to be punished. And often white people are looked at, this is a person that's gone through a lot and they need to be helped. You know, they need assistance in overcoming some of the hardships that they've gone through. Right. Well, you're making me think about a recent statement by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was asked how things would look if we change policing. And uh, she said, well, you don't have to invent anything new. You just uh, fund uh, black neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color like you do white neighborhoods here. Right. Those neighborhoods don't have increased policing. They have increased resources. And when kids get in trouble in a white neighborhood, um, everything is done possibly to prevent them being involved in the criminal justice system. And the converse is true in a black neighborhood, and that is that everything is done possible to get them into the criminal justice system. Exactly. So do you have other ideas uh, about what we can do to, to make a difference in this current climate? Yes. One of the things that we could do is something like you and I are doing right now, but maybe with more people involved, because just to have a conversation means a lot. Because oftentimes you think that you're alone and you're the only person that feels this way. And to Mm -hmm. talk and hear other people that have similar experiences and how it impacts them helps you to remain strong. Mm -hmm. I like that. One thing that we have to do, we have to connect with the young people. So whatever kind of meetings, circles, conversations, whatever we do, we have to involve the young people. Because you know how your grandmother passed on those stories? Society's reacting to the recorded shootings and killings of black men and women uh, uh, by peacefully protesting. And some of those protests have been infiltrated by militia and white supremacist agitators, resulting in looting and destruction. And then recently in Kenosha, Wisconsin, one of those uh, young infiltrators shot three pe- people and killed two uh, of them and then kind of calmly walked past the, the police and with drove the rifle. back to his house with the rifle over his shoulder right. with, with the protesters yelling that this guy had just killed two people. Uh, right. But the media had painted the entire protest and all of the protesters is violent. Can you tell me your take on this? It's the same old song sung on a different day. 
protesters, to me, especially black protesters and people of color, they always have somebody in their midst that's trying to start, stir up stuff so that the protest, whatever message they're trying to get across is lost. And then the narrative that the media picks up and people are talking about is like how these, you know, they're just destroying property. If any kind of white businesses get their windows broken, and then if it's in the African-American community, it's like, well, you know, why do they always tear up their own stuff? And let's talk about the issue. Stuff been getting torn up forever. These are not the first protests and riots. When the spotlight is off, then we, we don't talk about the problem anymore. And that's why 400 years later, we're still having these conversations, you know? Right. It gets tiring, but we can't stop because we all have daughters and sons and cousins and, you know, mothers and aunties and uncles that are living in this. And so people like me and you and your daughter, we have an obligation to keep the dialogue going. You know, we don't have the luxury of getting tired. You know, one of the things that I think about is the slaves that had to work in the field, clean the house, and raise their families with nothing. They didn't get to get tired. Right, yes. My daughter made some gumbo the other day. Mm, It was delicious. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, gumbo, that's like we black people invented that because that was like all the scraps that nobody else wanted. And we took it and turned it into a delicacy. And Mm -hmm. so that's what we do. Give me those scraps of uh, cloth. I'm going to make a a beautiful quilt. Yes. And that's what has allowed us to survive and thrive. Yeah, you're right. We can't give up. We we have to keep pushing. I I think every day, you know, about my my daughters and uh, my little nieces and nephews and all of the people that are going to come behind us. And we do have to make a better world, a better place for them. And if we give up, what what kind of role model are, are we being? Exactly, because by us putting one foot in front of the other, we're leaving them the template for how to keep on going. And each well, generation takes that template and makes it their own, like pattern where you're getting fitted for a suit or a dress. You got to take it in a little here and let it out a little <laughs> bit. You still got something to wear. That's a beautiful image. That combined <laughs> with a gumbo. Yeah, yeah. I like it. We have to ask the kids, what what do they want to do? We got to listen. What do they want? and how do they want it to look, and then let us get in and support them and t- 
turn over that baton, pass that baton on. But we yeah. need to get with uh, some young folk and people like you and me, and we need to at least start a conversation about what do we want to change and how do we change it. This has been uh, a joy, Sheree, spending time with you and good to pick your brain and hear your experiences and have a chance to see what life and history has been like for you. So, again, thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Okay, Sheree, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you okay. for your time. Okay, bye. had so many thoughts after listening to Rodney catch up with his lifelong friend Cherie Allison. I'm reminded that when we are young, we sprint everywhere. We're in such a hurry to do everything and do it right now. We really believe that we could do it all. Do you remember that? And then adult life hits us. Our professional and familial responsibilities begin to consume us. There's a collective understanding that life is no longer a sprint, but more like a marathon. We all learn to pace ourselves as there's so much to do and only a finite amount of energy to complete the many tasks we hope to achieve. Work? Check. Family time? Check. Friend time? Maybe this weekend. Fight for human rights? Mmm. Well, that's a work in progress. Most of us plot along doing our fair share to keep our family content and to do no harm in the world. When we get a chance to hold the door for someone or attend a peaceful protest, we seize these opportunities and begin to realize that life really has become a marathon. And then what seems in a blink of an eye, our children begin to leave the nest and we become empty nesters. And we find more time to be contemplated. We realize that our energy is beginning to wane. But the hope to create world peace, while that's still ever important, most of us continue to be engaged and to do our part to make the world a better place. But we understand that it's time to pass the baton. You heard Rodney and Cherie talk about this. They, as black retirees, have been in the fight. And really, they didn't have a choice. As people of color, they always knew they had to fight for their very existence. Cherie fought to demand human rights as an attorney. She met with Dr. John Lewis. And she used his inspiration to further propel her to do more and to be more. Cherie also met with Dr. Angela Davis, who encouraged Cherie to never settle for societal norms, but instead to create her own, and by doing so, she empowers others. This notion reminds me of Coach Ed's favorite quote. It reads, Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You playing small doesn't serve the world. This interview, I hope, reminds you that time is indeed finite, and we must use all our power to be the person our young self was rushing so ambitiously to become, the person who indeed can do it all. Do you remember that person? The person who is going to cure cancer and create world peace. 
As we go through life, we must always remember that we have to work together across generations. And when it is time, just as Cherie Allison mentioned, we must be ready to pass the baton and beckon the help of the youth because life in the end is a relay race. Everyone is equally important. We hope our words have sparked at least one aha moment and that you will help us to keep this powerful human rights movement going. We hope you opt to be an ally. Accept, learn, listen, and that you take action and demand social justice. And now, as I close out this episode, I want to remind you all to stand out, be a solid ally, and to purchase your Solid Lotion Bar Justice products. Remember, all proceeds are being donated to organizations fighting racial injustice. So visit www.solidlotionbar.com and order your Justice Lotion Bar today. And lastly, I'm pleading with you, Louisville, Kentucky's judicial system, arrest the criminals who murdered Breonna Taylor. Pod save the rest of us listeners. Thank you for tuning in and becoming a solid ally. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bar Company. If your skin, much like our nation, is in need of repair and uplifting, check out Solid Lotion Bar Company. Handcrafted in small batches, we make solid lotion bars that melt into moisturizing lotion. With many scents to choose from, there is a solid lotion bar for everyone. Please visit www.solidlotionbar.com and purchase your justice bar today, where proceeds will be directed to local racial and social justice charities as we stand together for lotion and justice for all. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley, Karen Castro, and Robert Stanley. We want to thank our guest, whose open and honest responses shaped an informative and empathetic episode. As always, we need to thank our fantastic Pod Say the Rest of Us listeners. Your support means so much to us. Additionally, we need to thank the many people who have made it possible for us to stand out. This includes our great ally team, Crystal, Ed, Jill, Justice, Rodney, Tina, and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Also, a special thanks to Keith Ramey for his informative voiceover work. As always, we need to thank our musical genius team, Hunter Lewis, Danny Burns, Alejandro Amescua of Dro Beats, and Robert Stanley. We also need to thank Justice for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for her web design work and production support, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor and contributor, the Solid Lotion Bar Company. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website at podsavetherestofus.com as well as on Instagram at Pod Save the Rest of Us or on Twitter at Save the Rest of Us. We'd like to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. As you know, this helps us grow and reach more listeners and gain more allies. And as always, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners, thank you for tuning in.
Captain Shack.